Hello, my name is Corey, and welcome to the RCF Podcast, a place where you can dive deep into what the scriptures say, get caught up on current events, or sit back and listen to topical discussions on life from all ages. Thanks so much for tuning in. Now I'm going to turn it over to RCF's Pastor James. All right. Hey, Roseburg Christian Fellowship and any of those who have wandered by through this podcast, we're continuing on today as we truck on through the rest of the churches. There are the seven churches in Revelation. Today, in preparation for Sunday and just life in general, we're going to look at what is oftentimes referred to as the Luke Warm Church. The Church of Laodicea, found in Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. So I'm going to read that. We're going to get in a little bit of history, as always, and a little bit of... Uh, what it has to say, and briefly examine maybe even our own hearts in the light of it. So, without further ado, Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich, have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, Blind and naked, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich and white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All right, so as this epistle, this short little letter to a church that was in existence there, as we look back to the uh, late first century, around 95 AD. And just before we dig in, I, as I was sitting here reading it, I just, it just thought, occurred to me, you know, so often as we discuss the relevance of God's Word today, knowing that time is not a big issue for the Lord, He had been, the Lord Jesus had been ascended into heaven for a good 60 years now, but yet He reached in and a large majority of what He had to say to the church was drawn from their culture, their city, their time, and their daily activity. 
And just as Jesus would speak to you and to I today, he has no problem with using our occupation, our culture, and our community to reach and to impact our life that we might give it fully and completely more to him. So just an interesting thing. So the the city of Laodicea, a little background, and it's actually a very old city as we talked about Philadelphia last week, and it was probably the youngest city. Philadelphia, or excuse me, Laodicea really kind of rivals as one of more of the older cities. It stretches back to a couple thousand years, easily before Christ, so before this moment. And it was, you know, oftentimes it's the city of Zeus, Diospolis. And it was, it existed there for quite a while in the ancient times before it was taken over and ruled during the, the Lydian Empire. And as we've talked about that a number of times through these seven churches, that whole area in Asia Minor was, was a part of the, the empire of Lydia for, for quite some time. But concerning the city of Laodicea, as Greece had split up and as those four generals had gone their separate ways as predicted by Daniel and Antiochus of the Seleucid, um, empire. They, he came down and he took over the city that would become Laodicea. It wasn't Laodicea at that part. And he used it to kind of uh, fortify their empire as an outpost of the Seleucids in about 250 BC. And at that point, Antiochus the Great, or Antiochus II, he, he renames the city after his wife. And at that point, that's when the city was actually named Laodicea. And that name, of course, stuck for quite some time. It's not Laodicea anymore as, you know, the process of time, about a thousand years after this letter was written, it would be, it would exchange many hands and is actually under the name of something quite different today, I believe, as the Turks would, would take it over many, many years later. So it was an ancient city, and that's just a brief, but uh, not too in-depth look at it as we've taken a little more in-depth on some of the other places. It was, uh, it was a city uh, just on a little plateau, about 100 feet or so, not too much above the valley of the Lycus River. It was, only, it was just a short stone's throw from the city of Colossae. It was close to 100 miles or so east of Ephesus. So after Antiochus came, renames the city, and it begins to grow, and, the, and Rome rises, and of course, and takes it all, Rome really kind of does some good investment in Laodicea, because just like Philadelphia, as it's kind of over on that eastern side of Asia Minor, they were, they were gateways to the east, and that's one reason that whole section was given to Rome, why it was such a wonderful asset. And Laodicea was one of those assets for trade. Laodicea was one of, the, arguably, the only city in that area that wasn't really doesn't seem to really be founded with any good military thought in mind. Not, hey, this is defensible. Hey, this will help do different stuff to help protect uh, our capital or anything. It was just founded location for trade to be a good business. City. That's what Rome really invested in as they put their infrastructure and their roads there. 
And so Laodicea was on this route, and they had roads and I believe even a river that stretched all the way back and, and would give them access to China. It was a wonderful place for trade. And it became kind of a cosmopolitan area where bankers and goldsmiths and traders and uh, just this whole group of people pursuing the wealth off of trade and commerce would gather in Laodicea, and it prospered quite, quite well. They would build a series of aqueducts. One would stretch, they had two, and... And one would be bringing in water that was cool from the mountains, and one would bring in warmer water from some hot springs. But the challenge was that at least one of the aqueducts was about six miles long, and it was open, and so really hard to keep water the same temperature at that rate. And so by the time it was the city, it would be actually quite lukewarm, neither hot nor cold. Interesting note as Jesus would speak and grab into those those aspects of their culture and their society. So Ephesus was this gateway of commerce to the east, similar to Philadelphia, but uh, probably a little bit on a grander scale. Like Sardis and like Philadelphia, they had experience to a number of earthquakes. The most notable one is we look, you know, Sardis had to move off of its hill and down and became more vulnerable because of one um, in the earlier first century. Philadelphia, their big earthquake was around 70 AD that, that really caused many people to have to move out of the city. And Jesus gave that wonderful promise that they wouldn't have to do that anymore with the city that he was building. But Laodicea had their big earthquake, so says history, around 60 AD, and it destroyed their city. But unlike Sardis or Philadelphia, who were just in dire straits, and if Rome didn't intervene, they were going to be in real trouble, and thus kind of sucked them into emperor worship, because many people were so thankful for what the emperor and Rome had done for them. Laodicea proudly, history says, proudly rejected Rome's help because it was rich and it could do it itself. And so they were happy to rebuild their their city and they were, you know, kind of just, they were good to go, self-satisfied. We don't, don't need help. We're rich. We have the resources we need. We don't need help, which I think is interesting also in light of the epistle that Jesus wrote to them. Some of the things that they were kind of known for in their day, not only was their, their gold, but they also had a school of medicine, which I suppose, you know, um, looking at some of their deities, as they also worshipped Asclepius, as another church, that, well, several other churches that we already looked at did too, um, was kind of the, the healing deity of their day that many worshipped. But here seems to be another school there, and out of that would come this Isaf that was well known, this powder, this it was famous for it. And of course, you know, you had something, then you could draw them in, and that was, you know, that's a big, big deal. And 
I don't think in our modern time, especially us in our Western culture, oftentimes think about division so much. And honestly, I never thought about it, and I, I digress in this, I suppose. I never really thought about it until we went to Cuba. And we were going to this country, Cuba, that's you know, very well educated. The average person is very educated. The communist regime did put uh, emphasis on it and was going to do a good job with educating their people. And for the most part, um, for a godless system, you know, as far as the ABCs and the 123s, did a good job. But here's the problem, as communism has not, <laughs> not been successful there, like everywhere else in the world, um, you just can't get what you need. And so you would have these, let's say, 40-year-old women and men, or even younger kids who had eye issues. And just for the process of time, whether it be natural or you're born with issues that, that, of your eyes, you, you, you can't get glasses, because there's no availability for reading glasses or prescription glasses. And so here you are, well-educated, cruising along in life, but you get older and, well, you can't see. And now you can't read because you don't have the basic necessities. And so that, anyways, neither here nor there, just interesting to me that that sometimes what starts off as a good idea doesn't work out so good. But anyways, in Laodicea, they're famous for that. They also had some worship of, of Zeus and, uh, you know, a few other things. Pretty common. Most of that was all pretty common as we've touched on through the other seven churches. Um, Laodicea, oh, they were also very famous for their black... Uh, Black textiles, they would produce these, these cloths, this material um, that was very, very dark, very black cloth because they had this special, um, unique uh, sheep and their, their lamb, their wool was very, very black and unique in the world. You couldn't really get it anywhere else. And so they became very renowned also for exporting their black garments. And so, you know, as we kind of make that mental note of that, that here they're known for their black garments. They were known for their gold and their riches. They were known for their eye salve and for their healing. They were known for their aqueducts with their best intention of bringing in cool or hot water, but only winding up with lukewarm, that they had a perception of being rich. And, And Jesus reaches into those and he speaks to them. That they weren't just random thoughts or words that Jesus was pulling out, but it actually would be significant to the church. And as he would begin to speak to this church, I think as, again, we'll touch on next week, the prophetic aspect of the seven churches and how it speaks to church history. We'll go in-depth in that. That this really represents the last days or the kind of one a good chunk of the end times church that will be leading up to the to uh, the great tribulation that it was a church that in this letter Jesus you know he's got some tough tough words for them and one of the great challenges 
One of the great barriers to truth is the thought that we already have it. Now, I'm not talking about, you know, the salvation in Christ. I'm not talking about doctrinal truth that that comes from Scripture or the Scriptures. What I'm talking about is when we kind of get a good bead in life, where we're no longer teachable in our walk with Jesus. You know, and we see that, oh man, so often just creep into my church, our church, or or the denomination, or whatever down the street, and, and how many, as you look across the denominations and the churches across the landscape, how many still have a passion for the gospel? That the gospel of Jesus Christ still changes lives? Or have we kind of settled into a good group, a good groove? And so that's kind of a, it's a real challenge and a barrier for for not only them, but us, us as well. There was a, yeah, I was going to read it, but there's an interesting song in the lyrics, and you can look it up for your own time and edification, if you will, maybe not edification, but your own time. And it's one by Steve Taylor. It's called, I Want to Be a Clone. And really, where we've just kind of settled for looking like everybody else, rather than being passionate on fire, wanted to be like Jesus. And so that's where the city was, and that's where Jesus kind of speaks into this city. It was probably planted by Epaphras, Paul's faithful and wonderful companion. Though Paul, it seems very well, may have written a letter to the church, as noted in Colossians. He himself, it seems, had never been there. And I bring up Colossae and and Paul's desire to write to them. And of course, you know, they're only, you know, a mile or so apart. They're very close in proximity. I bring them up because there are some unique connections that I want to point out before we leave it this morning. If you notice Colossians, if you've really dug into that letter, one of the Early, one of the major themes is the supremacy of Jesus. Who he is, what that means over creation. So I'm going to flip there real quick, and and I just want to read briefly a little bit of uh, Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 18. Speaking to this church that was a neighbor to Laodicea. And this letter also, Paul instructed for them to read in Laodicea that wasn't just for the Colossians only. He is the image of the invisible God, speaking of Christ, the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things. And in him all things consist, and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. So this neighboring city to Laodicea needed to be reminded that it wasn't about philosophy. It wasn't about legalism. It wasn't carnality. It was Christ. 
and he was pre he is pre the preeminent one over all creation. So back in Revelation, Jesus states something about himself to this church in Laodicea that ties to that quite well and oftentimes is so misunderstood. And that's chapter 3, verse 14. Right off the bat, right out of the gate. And it is when he says right at the end of verse 14 that he's not only the true witness, but he's the beginning of the creation of God. Why say that? What do you mean? How does that tie together? Well, the, the word beginning, RK, doesn't mean like the first one created. And some begin to either understand it that way or to, to teach it that way. But that's not the meaning of the word at all. The word is the same word as in the beginning in John 1.1. In the origin. In the source. And that was the thrust of, and that's the meaning of the word that Jesus is saying. And so, even though the English doesn't bring that out just right, that it would be noteworthy that Jesus tells this church, reminds this church, as they would have been taught years earlier, he is the preeminent one. He's the beginning, he's the source of the entirety of the creation of God. The entirety of the creation of God. And I don't want to get into too much of a teaching yet. We've got to save some for Sunday. But it isn't interesting that Jesus reminds them of who he is as the creator concerning the creation of God. And as this speaks into our day and age, that one of the biggest challenges is our battle against evolution. Creation processes. And here's the crux of it without going too long and too deep. As people wrestle with the coming of Jesus, because it really ties the two together, as people wrestle with they can't understand the coming, the return of Jesus, and they can't understand the creation, how God started it all, where this all fits in, how's that work? It's because both the creation and the return are events where a God outside of space and time intervenes in it. And you can't test tube it. You can't calculate it. You can only believe what he has said. A good reference for that is in 2 Peter. One says, where is the promise of his coming? Since the beginning, since the fathers fell asleep, everything has continued on as it has. Because you'd have to believe the word that there is a God outside of space and time is going to roll back the skies. That's going to call his church out of space and time and into heaven with himself. You can't get that from a calendar. You can't get that from a study of rocks or fossils. And the same way with the creation. There are some things 
that when God said he spoke all things into existence, that he upholds everything right now by the word of his power. God left an element of faith in it because he is greater, he's above, he's over, he's the preeminent one over this creation. Hmm. So, a lot to dig in there. You can dig deeper in your own time. Some interesting stuff there indeed. A couple things I would put noteworthy is as difficult as this church is, he reminds them and specifically tells them that he loves them. Because it's hard to receive correction and rebuke. And Jesus said, to as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. That's a big deal to remember that this is love. He's reaching out with the arms of love to receive his church. And even though this church, it's kind of a scathing report against it that it had no collective call to repentance for the church, but only individual. It seems that the organization, the structure of it, the system that this represents or had going. It's not going to be one that's turned around, but only the individuals out of it, out of lukewarmness. And Laodicea, interesting enough, means ruled by the people. As we talked about the Nicolaitans, Leo, it's the same word, the laity, the people, and it's ruled by. A group of self-sufficient, rich, self-deceived individuals. They didn't submit to the authority and the rulership and the headship and the structure that God would put in. They themselves would decide what would happen. And Jesus calls them to be zealous or hot. That's what the word means. And repent. And that Jesus is standing outside the door and he's knocking. And the picture there being partially to us, to the human heart. There was an interesting painting once done where Jesus is standing outside the door knocking and there's no doorknob on it. And somebody said, hey, why didn't you put a doorknob on that thing? And the artist said, because it's of the human heart and it's only to be open from the outside. Or inside, excuse me. As Jesus stands and knock. And then he gives this most wonderful promise. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit on with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down on my father's throne. What a promise to sit on the throne. This ruling and reigning from Jerusalem, obviously not the throne of God, but Jesus as the Messiah, the, the man Christ Jesus, that throne, the throne of David that authority. What an honor and what a privilege. And what do you got to overcome? Being lukewarm. Now, Jesus said, I would prefer if you were cold or hot. But there as he closes, he says, repent and be, be zealous and repent, be hot. Though Jesus prefers on or off, get off the fence, he prefers hot. He wants you to serve him. He wants you to have that place. He wants to take the Laodiceans. He wants to take the Roseburg Indians. <laughs> Anybody, whosoever will. 
is. He's got a space and a plan for you. So often we want to say, hey, you know, God loves you and he's got a plan for your life. And we don't think beyond this life. He does have a plan for for your life. That Colossians, or excuse me, Ephesians 2.10. He's got good works for you in this life, plans since the foundation of the world. But he's got plans for you long after the foundation of the world that will last longer than the world itself. And far greater are many of those works as we labor with our Lord and Savior. May he come quickly. I'll see you guys on Sunday. I hope some of that helped. Again, if you've got some thoughts, some history, or some just interesting factoids about the church of Laodicea, love to hear that. Love to hear from you. God bless you guys. Until then, keep on looking up, and may the Lord bless and keep you. Bye-bye.